That's a tricky passage, isn't it? <laughs> kind of long and complicated, I think. Um, but let's see how we get get on. Morning, everyone. The German philosopher Schopenhauer once said that people are like a pack of porcupines on a freezing night. The sub-zero temperature forces them together, but as they come together, they stab each other, they hurt each other, so they kind of break apart again, but then they get cold, and so they come together again, and they jab each other again, and so it goes on. And in very broad terms, that describes the context of Paul's two letters to the Christians in Corinth. Corinth was a bustling major city located about uh, 100 kilometers west of Athens in the southern part of modern Greece to us or to Achaia to Paul. And much of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is about the prickly relationships within the church. Whereas much of 2 Corinthians is about Paul's prickly relationship with the church. And because of that prickly relationship in our passage today, we find Paul on the defensive about his manner, about his ministry, and about his message. And all three are tied up in what we know as the new covenant, which is the starting point for everything. We often quote the words that Jesus spoke at the Last Supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. I've got a ringing sound. If you're able to, I'm sure you're working on it, but... Um, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So what Jesus was saying is there's, there's a new deal on the table. There's a new agreement in place. There's a new way for us to get right with God. And that deal, that new covenant, is at the heart of everything that Paul said and did. Now, as we go through uh, 2 Corinthians, we're going to be tackling some uh, long passages um, sometimes I imagine we'll zero in on a particular verse or a couple of verses that will be our focus. Sometimes we'll take a look at the, the whole passage and try and get a picture of you know, the, the outline and the overview. And sometimes I imagine we'll just drop into a particular theme and kind of follow a theme all the way through. Um, I'm going to attempt to do numbers two and three this morning in the three hours left to us. So we're going to try and follow a theme. That was a joke, by the way, for anyone visiting. Um, we're going to try and follow a theme, and um, we're also going to try and pick up an overview um, of the verses that Eric read to us. So I want to begin with Paul's covenant manner, or the, the, the covenant manner that Paul refers to, because the new covenant brings about a change in a person's life which results in a new way of thinking and a new way of living. Now, part of the prickly context of chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, the first section uh, that Eric read, appears to be an appalling incident of sexual immorality that's referenced in 1 Corinthians that Paul confronts in his letter to them 
uh, a situation where a man was in a relationship with his father's wife. And the church had followed up on Paul's recommendation of discipline, exactly what that looked like, we don't know. It sounds quite severe. Verse 6, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient, he says. And now, verse 7, now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him. So the, the, the thought that I want to draw out of this first section is that we must be practitioners of both grace and truth. It's clear from Paul's words that truth had been acted on. They'd taken the, the difficult decision, the, the, the difficult action. But now it was time for grace to step forwards and to play its part. Jesus, we are told in the letter to the Hebrews, was the mediator of the new covenant. And he came full of grace and truth. Full of both of them. Full of grace and full of truth. And grace and truth reflect what the new covenant is about. Jesus' death on the cross, by which we are reconciled to God, reflects both the truth that justice must be done, but also the grace of forgiveness offered to all of us who believe. Grace and truth. And getting grace and truth right is not easy. But this way of living, this way of thinking that cherishes both is what the new covenant is about. Our manner and the way in which we do things and the way in which we speak must be graceful and truthful, full of grace and full of truth. And to dial down one or the other is to betray the essence of the new covenant. But it's not easy. It's not easy for us as individuals, and it's not easy for us as churches to be faithful to both. In his commentary on this section, um, Tom Wright notes that acting in truth is painful. This is what he says. If one, that's if one person is sorrowful, a blight is cast over them all, that is, the whole church. If one is allowed license to go on sinning without restraint, the whole community is pulled down into the mud. Holding these two together requires a Christian community to think in terms of an ongoing story rather than a snapshot moment. It may be necessary first to confront and discipline a persistent sinner and then to deal with the sorrow that results. Too often the church, at least in the mainstream of modern Western Christianity, has been so anxious about ever causing sorrow to anyone, that it has backed off from confrontation and discipline. And I think as a church, well, I'm sure as a church, we may have to make difficult decisions. As individuals, we will have to make difficult decisions. And there's no manual for this. There's no manual that says, if A, do B. But what there is are some principles to guide our actions. Grace and truth, modelled perfectly by Jesus for us. So then, the new covenant brings a change which results in a new way of thinking and a new way of living, a covenant manner. But then secondly, 
it results in a new way of serving, covenant ministry. To pursue a career in the Church of England used to be highly sought after and rather lucrative, to be honest. Um, Many old rectories with fine mansions and extensive gardens tell the story of the benefits of the clerical calling. And of course, the Church of England is not alone in that respect. But Paul describes his calling, and by implication, the calling of all ministers, in far from comfortable terms. A covenant ministry will be painful because its ministers will have a genuine concern for people, for individuals and for the church as a whole. That's a burden they have to carry. And Paul describes his anxiety, for example, about Titus in this section of the letter. And he uses words like distress and pain and anguish and grief to describe the emotions that he's gone through and is going through on behalf of the church. He's written to the Corinthians with many tears in chapter 2 and verse 4. So to be a covenant minister is to be on an emotional roller coaster because such a person cares about the people that they have been called to serve. And I think it's a bit like being a good parent. Not that I'm speaking from experience, just you know, in theoretical terms, you understand. When a good parent sees their child get into trouble or make poor choices, they don't just shrug their shoulders you know, indifferently. Or if there's a fallout and, and the child gets angry with them, the good parent doesn't just walk away as if nothing matters. They can't because they care. They care. And because they care, they get hurt. So a covenant ministry will be painful. And then secondly, it will be provocative. Because the message is provocative. And by that, I don't mean that these people will be annoying or inflammatory, although they might be. Um, but that they will prompt a reaction. For we are to God, Paul writes, the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we're an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And the picture Paul is reminding his readers of here is when a commander of um, some Roman forces would come into Rome on the back of a victory parade. And as part of that parade, incense would have been scattered around. So there was a smell coming in with the victorious army. And you knew, if you smelt that smell, that a battle had been fought and that a victory had been won. And you knew whether, whether you were one of the slaves being carried in and, you know, as an exhibit or whether you were on the winning side. That smell of incense carried associations with it. And when you smelt it, they were either good, good associations or bad associations. And the presence of God's people triggers associations. Because the ministers of the covenant are carriers of truth. And they speak the word of God plainly. Verse 17. We don't peddle the word of God for profit. 
On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. And that plain message of the gospel carries associations with it for people. Some people will react positively to it. Many people will react negatively to it, will be very antagonistic towards it. That was Jesus' experience. That was Paul's experience. That will be the experience of the covenant minister. But it's not all bad news. A covenant ministry will be fruitful. You are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So the evidence that Paul was a servant of the new covenant was the lives that had been changed as a result of his ministry. And they'd been changed so evidently and so obviously that everyone could tell. The Corinthians were living letters from Christ. Christ Christ had used um, Paul like a person would use a pen, dipping him in the spirit of God and writing life change on people's hearts. But that fruitfulness comes at a cost. The author A.W. Tozer once wrote about two kinds of ground, fallow ground and ground that has been broken up by the plough. And he says of the latter, the field has been upset and turned over and bruised and broken, but its rewards come hard upon its labours. The seed shoots up into the daylight, its miracle of life, Curious, exploring the new world above it. Nature's wonders follow the plough. And Jesus, of course, also spoke of the cost of fruitfulness. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And as we go through the letter, particularly around chapter 6 and chapters, chapter 11, we'll see the great price that Paul paid for his own fruitfulness in ministry. And then a covenant ministry will be humble. Who is equal to such a task, he says in 2 verse 16. Not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God, he says in chapter 3 and verse 5. And it's easy to forget that prior to Christianity, few people had really thought about humility as a virtue. But the virtue that marked the Saviour marks those who minister in his name. And I think Paul would have echoed the Jesuit litany of humility, as it's known, which is quoted by Pete Gregg in his book, Dirty Glory, which goes like this. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others, deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being approved, Deliver me, O Jesus, that others may be esteemed more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace 
to desire it. That in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be chosen and I set aside. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be preferred to me in everything. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. And then finally, for this section, a covenant ministry will be releasing. Paul writes, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. There is a ministry that loads guilt on you. There's a ministry that's full of oughts and musts. There's a ministry that is full of do's and don'ts. And Paul fought against this ministry right from the very start of the early church because he saw it expressing itself right from the beginning. And it has been doing so ever since. I came across this uh, amusing example um, of legalism in practice. So some years ago now, a youth worker attended a church and um, in his day he was Quite, quite a kind of forward-looking, creative chap, uh, and he decided to show a video to the young people of the church. Black and white, missionary film, safe stuff. But an hour after he'd shown it, some of the leaders of the church came to him and said, um, we hear that you've shown a film, is that right? He said, yes, I have. They said, we don't like that thing, that kind of thing. He said, well, well why not? At the missionary conference a little while ago, um, somebody was showing slides, and someone raised his hand and said, Ah, if it's still, it's fine. If it moves, it's a sin. <laughs> and we laugh because it's ridiculous. But that's, that's, a, that's a legalism from a few years ago. But that spirit of legalism is alive and well. We love to live by do's and don'ts, musts and must nots. But that's not the way. Covenant ministry will be recognized by the life and freedom that it brings. It's not about the letter, the law. That kind of ministry is a killer. Covenant ministry brings life. So let's just recap for a moment. So the new covenant brings a change which results in a new way of thinking and a new way of being. Covenant manner. And the new covenant is entrusted to those who will care about God's church, whose words and actions will divide because the truth divides, who will be fruitful instruments in the Lord's hands, but whose humble ministry will bring life and freedom, a covenant ministry. So thirdly and finally... At the heart of the new covenant is a message that brings great glory. And it's such a glorious message that despite everything Paul has gone through, he will not lose heart. I'm just cheating. I'm borrowing a verse from the fourth chapter, chapter 4, verse 1. He will not lose heart. And to understand, the, to understand what Paul is saying in, these, in this complicated final section, we have to go back to Exodus 34. You don't have to turn there. Just believe me. Moses 
had gone up Mount Sinai, and the Lord had given him there the Ten Commandments. And after 40 days in God's presence, we read these words. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he wasn't aware that his face was radiant because he'd spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. And afterwards, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with them, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he'd been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. And then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. So that's the context of what Paul is um, commenting on in these verses. What's going on at the end of 2 Corinthians and chapter 3? Well, Paul is contrasting the ministry of the old covenant with the ministry of the new covenant. He says the ministry of the new covenant is glorious. It's worth all the pain and the trouble that it has brought with it. The old covenant, he says, brought death. This is a thought he expands on in Romans 7.10, where he writes, the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Basically, the rule was there, but we couldn't keep it, and the wages of sin is death. The old covenant, well, that was engraved on letters of stone, but it was only ever a temporary arrangement. Our failure to keep all of those regulations just brought condemnation. So he says, contrast all of this. Contrast all of this with the life-giving, righteousness-bringing, permanent new covenant written on people's hearts by the Spirit. What a glorious new agreement. What an unbelievably glorious, gracious message he had been entrusted with. And so he says he will continue to be Bold, he'll continue to boldly declare this message of the new covenant, despite all of the problems it brings to him. He will be bolder than Moses, who experienced a temporary glory which faded each time he left God's presence. Because the new covenant is permanently glorious, or gloriously permanent. And he will be bold because whenever God uses Paul's message of the new covenant to open someone's eyes and heart to its truth... Glorious freedom comes to that person. And he will be bold because in God's presence, a glorious transformation, personal transformation takes place and we become more like Jesus. Well, what's any of that got to do with us? It's always a good question to ask, isn't it? What's any of that got to do with us? After all, we are not ministers, are we? Ellen's a minister. So we'll leave Ellen to take this message away and the rest of us can just uh, go on to Sunday lunch. Well, not at all. Because this passage is relevant to us in every way. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you have accepted the new covenant. Just another way of saying it. You've agreed to the new deal. And that covenant manner, that new way of thinking, 
and new way of living which results from the new covenant should be your manner, should be my manner. In what we say and in what we do, we should be people of grace and truth. Truth and grace. Our words should be full of grace and truth. Our actions full of truth and grace. And that word minister or ministry, don't let that put you off, is just the word for servant or service. So as a follower of Jesus, as servants of the master, our service is likely to have the same hallmarks as Paul's service. Sometimes it will be painful because we love people and we get hurt. Sometimes people will be antagonistic towards us because they are antagonistic towards the message. Sometimes we will experience the uncomfortable process of pruning, but we will see fruit as a result. We'll be conscious that we need the help of the Holy Spirit to do anything of value, anything that's going to last. And that will drive us to our knees literally or metaphorically. It will cause us to be humble. But the message that we carry is a message that brings freedom. And as other people hear that message and respond to that message, they enter into that freedom that Christ brought for them. So even though life will be tough at times, and it will be tough at times, we will be bold because we are carriers of a glorious message of an everlasting new deal from God, a transforming message that brings glorious liberty. Thanks be to God for his glorious new covenant. Amen.